Have you ever seen Ghost Ship? I, is that the one where if it's like they're on a time loop and they keep going, finding themselves, and they sort of figure out they're on a time loop and they keep sort of just missing themselves and some of the things that appear to be ghosts at the start are actually them as they're going around the ship several times and then they find a pile of themselves dead. No. What the hell movie was that then? I don't know. That was in your mind. No, this this movie exists. You need to watch Ghost Ship. It's so good. It doesn't sound as good as the movie I just made up in my head. No, you need to watch it. I um, That's your homework. Is it? Mm. Okay. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place in your favourite era, the Victorian. Oh, love it. However, we're not starting there because the Royal Navy was founded in 1546 by Henry VIII. This was to replace the old system of kings gathering a makeshift collection of private and merchant ships at times of war, which sometimes didn't pan out. Uh, as King John himself can attest, being unable to stop an invasion by the French in 1216 because no one wanted to lend him their boats. <laughs> can you remember, imagine if that happened in Dunkirk? No, sorry. We don't want to lend you our boats? No, well, that's no. the thing. It worked when you were a strong king and people thought, well, we best we best lend him the boat because if we don't, he's going to be pissed. Mm. But King John was not what you call the strong king. So, and I, I need to borrow your ship. And everyone went, do you know, nah, no. I'm all right. Um, sorry. I need uh, to go fishing on that day. Sorry. Yeah, which meant that the French were able to land at Sandwich and kind of wreck his bon, shit. Yeah. Bonsoir. 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 Good night. Is that what it means? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> good yes they, they turned off and just went good night <laughs> so in the night garden in french bonsoir eagle pig or bonsoir i mean it was a very weird invasion if this is what was going on just freaking king john out fine more than anything but yeah i like it so the system didn't always work and as a result you know the, the king who was ruling at any given time didn't know what kind of navy they could raise you know it was a crapshoot if if some of these merchant vessels were off doing their thing you may actually have access to far less boats than you thought mm. barely half a century later the regular drilling and clear lines of command proved instrumental in repelling the spanish armada and the royal navy would go on to become the largest navy in the world after 1707 when it merged with the scottish navy following the act of union can i just chip in there yeah. the spanish armada was all down to weather it was down to weather quite a bit, but even with the benefit of that weather, if we'd have been still sticking to whatever we could cobble together, we mm. wouldn't have been able to take advantage of that weather. I'll, I'll okay. take your point that Fine. many, many times things that have been heralded as great British victories have actually been just pure fluke in terms of meteorological uh, happenstance, but okay, I'm, I'm giving them some credit. Okay. I'll give Drake a little bit of credit. Bonsoir, Jake. <laughs> so, this new navy, this Royal Navy, it proved instrumental in allowing a relatively small and historically backwards little island on the edge of Europe to build an empire that would cover around 25% of all the land in the world. Quite impressive. Very impressive. Considering right up until, you know, King Henry VIII, we were inconsequential, mainly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it didn't have the uh, the power. 
Not like He-Man. No, you know, we, we fought we fought with the French for power uh, over sort of like, you know, a bit of mainland Europe. But in terms of becoming a, uh, a force that could be reckoned with, that could fight on multiple fronts, that could hold lots of territory, we had to wait until we, we had this ability to control the seas. Yeah. Now, over the course of nearly 500 years that the Royal Navy's been in existence, it has developed its own slang language that is known as Jack Speak. And because there's been 500 years, it's become quite convoluted. Okay. Uh, and some of the phrases are definitely more obvious than others. So, with that in mind, would you like to try and guess the meanings of some Jack Speak? Oh my God, yes, I'm well excited. Okay, we'll start off with an easy one, yeah? Mm-hmm. I'll get... You say it's easy, I'll get it wrong now. So, what do you think a sailor would mean if they asked you for some cow juice? Milk. Yeah, see, it's easy. Okay. So, if someone was said to have swallowed the anchor, what would they have done? Swallowed the anchor. Like, I don't know, like lost their tongue, couldn't speak. Um, lost their nerve, maybe? Well, maybe lost their nerve. It was someone who left the Navy for good. If you if you decided to retire, you swallowed the anchor. Okay. Okay. If you had both sheets aft, what would you be doing? Both. Oh, put the mast up. Mass sail? It's yeah. got nothing to do with the actual sails. Okay, something to do with your bed then. Making your bed. Oh, <laughs> I, I like where you're going with it, but no, it's having both your hands in your pockets. Uh, okay. What are bum nuts? Bum nuts. They've got to be... Uh, it's not It's not going to be food, is it? It is, it's, it's an item of food. Um, uh, like, I don't know, bread, maybe? Eggs. Bum nut. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think they've badly uh, misunderstood the anatomy of the chicken, but... Yeah, okay. Bum nuts. What would a brown job be? A poo. <laughs> well, yes, but that's too obvious. A brown job. A brown job. Oh, like scrubbing the deck? It's how people in the Navy refer to soldiers. They're brown jobs. I'm guessing it's to do with the colours of the uniform. Oh, okay, fine. What are canteen medals? Uh, uh, canteen medals. Uh, like utensils? Canteen. Food. Is it a food-related oh, item? Where do you wear medals? Where do you wear that? Ceremonies? <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, in terms of on your body. Oh, okay. Uh, on your um, jacket? Yeah. On your... Oh, so it's your jacket? Clothing. It's stains on your clothes that you've got from eating. So if you've, if you've spilt a load of tomato sauce down your front... People are always oh, got some canteen medals. Ah, You've been a messy okay. eater. Yeah, fine. A hanging Judas. Hanging Judas. So Judas, bad, mm. betraying. Yes. Um, like a, a like if you've like betrayed someone. Kind like of. A, it's like a snitch. No, it's it's if somebody's tied a line badly, so they've not tied a knot properly or they've not tied it the way they're supposed to, it'd be referred to as a hanging Judas because you can't trust that knot. Ah, okay. If I asked you to bleed the monkey, what would you need to go and do? Oh, is it rude? No, no. no, None of these are rude. As you Uh, know, the the Royal Navy is completely asexual. For all the time they're at at sea, Don't be. no lustful thoughts enter a, a Navy man's head. They're all bumming. Um... Oh, I don't know. Go to the toilet. I uh, know. It's it's when you tap a cask of rum 
So it's opening, opening your rum. Fine. Bleeding the monkey. Uh, There's only two more left, you'll be pleased to know. Uh Uh-huh. What is a long tom? Uh, A long tom. Someone who's tall. I like that. No, it's it's really simple, this one. It's just a paintbrush tied to the end of a stick, so you can reach bits. Oh, okay, fine. (laughs) So you'll need to get us a long tom to get that last bit. Yeah. And the final one, if, uh, if you'd mustered your bag, what would you have done? Mustard your bag. Packed your bag. You'd have chundered everywhere, because it's uh, slang for being seasick. Ah. Uh, oh, m- I get really seasick. Yeah. He's mustered his bag right over the side. I remember having to... to uh, we used to go over from Dover to Calais quite a lot. Yeah. And I remember I, I, I'd always have to stay outside on the deck, because as soon as I went inside, I'd be sick. I'm sure right. the uh, you know the the workers on the ferry were very pleased that you chose to to manage that yourself by freezing as you crossed the channel. Yeah, I I did it in storms and everything. Mm. I was like, nope, I'm staying here. What? I'm pretty sure some of the crossings I did, they told us we weren't allowed on the deck. They're like, no. I mean, I did it anyway. I am I am gay. Let me outside. You really played that card? No, I've never played that card. <laughs> <laughs> this is oppression. I shall not be discriminated against. Let me go out and stand in the cold. <laughs> there was um. It's my right to be swept overboard. There was a ferry that so we were coming back from Calais into Dover, and it was really like choppy, and um, we were just coming into Dover, and everyone went down to their cars, mm. and you're not the meant to start your engines, but everyone fucking does. And um, and you so gassed a large population of people. Well, this is it. This is it. So we're down there for ages, and people are starting to fall asleep, right, down there. And then the um, the staff, like, come running down, like, banging on the windows, going, right, everyone out their cars, everyone back up to the deck, blah, 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 blah. So we all went up, and we looked out of the deck, and the ferry in front of us had crashed into the port. So that's <laughs> why we couldn't, like, dock... But yeah, everyone was getting like fumigated down in the because they couldn't be arse waiting. It's like no, mm. it, and it's weird because I mean I understand maybe the guys who are at the front and are going to be like off first turning their engines on, but what is everybody else hoping they're going to achieve? I know, I know, death maybe, yeah. maybe they wanted it. Please. Subconsciously, the entire ferry load of people went. It's time for us. In 1869, a new phrase was added to the naval lexicon: "Sweet Fanny Adams." This phrase was used to describe the new rations of tinned mutton. The tins doubled as mess tins, and to this day, mess tins are still referred to as fannies. (laughs) With kettles being referred to as rum fannies. Okay, fine. But where did this strange new slang come from? Bizarrely, it was from the little village of Alton in Hampshire, a good 30 Mm. miles from the nearest naval port in Portsmouth. Alton has been a settlement since at least the Iron Age, with a hoard of coins and jewellery found in 1996, now on display in the British Museum. Over the years, it has staged battles between Saxons and Vikings, and between Roundheads and Cavaliers. Mm. So it was, it was a named uh, battle site. I've been to Alton. Have you as, been? N- not, yeah, to that one, and the other one up north as well. Well, yeah, unfortunately this isn't the one with the towers. No. And the Smiler. And you know, I'm horrified amputation. that they were ever allowed to be the amputation. Um, I would let someone chop off my leg if I got a stupid amount of money. Let's let's hope you never have to make that 
argument in a court. I've done it. I've done it. How much are you offering me, Joe? I'll give you my leg. No, because there was a, a case in Australia only a, last week or the week before where a guy literally sawed someone else's leg off. They, I, I don't know why. It's like these two guys got drunk together and one asked the other guy to chop off his leg, and he did. That's not something out of American Horror Story. But the, he didn't, because he, he had him in a car and he was trying to drive him to a hospital after he'd done it, but he hadn't done anything like tourniquet the wound. So the guy just bled out on his... You know, did you die? His car. Yeah. Oh yeah, he died. Although he, I think he... I think the guy who did it is only being done for manslaughter uh, with diminished responsibility based on the fact that they were both pissed and, to be fair, he asked him to. Hmm. But yes, yeah. Alton. So it's very nice. Yes, it's, it's a nice little place. Yeah, and it you know it's got this historical pedigree already, but mm-hmm. by the Victorian era, it was just a sleepy little market town. Oh, that's how I like them. Yeah, it was, you know, if it had, if it was famous for anything at this point, it was that it provided hops for the local brewing industry. Yeah. Uh, and there was no crime beyond the occasional case of public urination, probably associated with drunkenness. Mm, hideous crime, uh, hideous. Having been reported, though, for at least a generation, so there'd been no violent crime in Alton for years. No oh, one could remember the, the last time there'd been anything. There's there's no crime in Glasgow either. <laughs> None. None. It was into the idyllic setting of Victorian Alton that Mm. a girl was born on April 30th, 1859, to George Adams, who was a bricklayer, and his wife Harriet. She was the first of three daughters they would have, and they named her Fanny. Mm. Good name. Strong. Well, you say that. Her younger siblings, uh, they got called Lizzie and Lily, and I feel they got the better end of the deal. Yeah, but it didn't have the connotation that it has now. No, I know. But I, Do you watch Ghosts on BBC? I, I don't watch anything. I think one of the things we've we've come to realise is that my TV viewing is very oh, narrow. There's so much stuff out there. And um, it's made by the people that make horrible histories, but it's for, like, adults. And um, she's called Lady Fanny. It still makes me laugh every time. Though. Lady Fanny! <laughs> well, I'm hoping that you won't laugh at Fanny Adams. Okay. In fact, if you do, you you may feel bad about it later because Fanny Adams, she spent eight happy years playing in the streets and fields near her home on Tanhouse Lane. The local children were allowed free reign to explore with a loose agreement of communal parenting ensuring that there was always somebody acting as a responsible adult nearby who could be alerted should any accidents occur. Mm. Fanny and her sisters even had an extra layer of safety because their paternal grandparents lived right next door. Oh, brilliant. So they had four adults looking out for them rather than the usual two. I need that. You need a few more uh, responsible adults around the looking place. Looking after me, yeah. Are you saying you need to move into a care home? Because we can arrange that. I mean, either that or an asylum. They don't do those anymore. I can move you to a secure mental unit, but I don't think you yeah, like it. Yeah, they're not as exciting, though, are they? No, they're, they're in modern buildings and there's no sort of, you know, high towers and... I want Victorian architecture. Yeah, if if you if you're gonna go insane, you may as well do it with a sense of you know the appropriate Grandeur. drama. <laughs> <laughs> the year of 1867, when Fanny turned eight, had started with ill omens, due to a month of ridiculous weather, with the temperature being recorded as nine below zero on the fourth of January, but nine above three days later on the seventh. Oh, okay. These rapid fluctuations in temperature led to snowdrifts forming that you could ski down, 
which then rapidly melted to cause flooding all over the country. The speed with which the weather turned also caught out a number of ice skaters on the lake at Richmond Park in London, where it is reported up to 40 people drowned when the ice unexpectedly gave way. Now, why do people do that? It's just such a silly thing to do. Well, you know, this was still during the Little Ice Age, sort of getting towards the end of it, but people were used to the idea of being able to go out and ice skate on frozen lakes. But it's silly, if you ask me, Joe. And also, I guess, you know, it's strangely um, tempting when it's like, oh, well, I can go for a, a... you know, a bit of an ice skate, but it's it's actually nice enough that I don't have to wear all of those layers. This is the True. best of both worlds. You know, I used to play ice hockey. Little fact for you there. Was that ever on a frozen lake? Uh, no, it was in a, in a properly built ice rink uh, or so ice bowl, as they used to call them. Well, and I think you were you're probably safe from accidental drowning. Ah, oh, damn. Mm. Well, the wild oscillation of temperatures in January continued until at least Easter with both 30 degree and sub-zero temperatures recorded in May. So, What? Yeah. So it's gone from like 30, like plus 30 to minus 9 yeah. or whatever. Well, down to sub-zero. I mean, by May it was just minus 1 or minus 2, but it still managed to go all the way through the gamut of what we'd normally expect to see all year within May. That's mad, isn't it? But it all finally settled down after Fanny's birthday into a long, hot summer. Fanny enjoyed spending the long days of July and August playing in the local hop gardens and down at Flood Meadows, which was the source of the River Way and was conveniently less than half a mile from Fanny's house. So I looked at this on a map and if you walk to the bottom of um, Tanhouse Lane, mm-hmm. it literally, the road stops, turns into a dirt track and you're immediately into an area of natural beauty. Oh, and is it still like that now? Yeah, yeah. If you went today, it's been protected... Uh, it's still there, but it's just, it's the equivalent of me walking out of my house now and just having, you know, a, a wetland reserve just at the bottom of my garden. So after lunch on August 24th, 1867, Fanny's best friend, Minnie Warner, knocked on for her. Minnie lived two doors down from Fanny and asked if she wanted to go and play in the Amory Hop Garden. This was also on Tanhouse Lane and Harriet Adams the mum, she was happy to let her eldest daughter go out and play with her friend, provided she took her younger sister Lizzie with her. So we've got Fanny, Minnie and Lizzie going off to play in a hop garden, because why not? It means that they're out of the way of the mum, who can get on with doing her washing or whatever Mm. menial task she was having to do. There was only a year between the two sisters, so Lizzie wouldn't be too much of a burden, and the three girls happily went off together to play just before 1pm. Okay. At about the same time, Frederick Baker was leaving the Swan Inn on the High Street, less than half a mile from Tanhouse Lane. Mm. Frederick Baker was a new face in Alton. He had moved to the town less than a year before from Guildford to take a job as a solicitor's clerk. Now, although the offices of Mr Clements, his boss, were literally across the road from the Swan Inn, Baker decided that he'd best go for a walk in the fresh air to counteract the couple of pints he'd had as part of his lunch. Naturally, he headed towards the cleanest air in the area, which just so happened to be situated at Flood Meadows. Mm. Mm. At some point, the paths of the three girls and Frederick Baker crossed. Frederick, he said hello, and he decided that it would be lovely if he gave Bonsoir. each of the girls a halfpenny so that they could buy some sweets. 
Nice. Yeah, very nice thing to do, isn't it? And rather than returning to work after doing this, Baker spent the next half hour picking blackberries for the girls and watching them play on the lane leading from Flood Meadows to the nearby village of Sholden. Okay, it's getting creepy now. You, th- you feel that's it's crossing a line, is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you're thinking it's, it's it's starting to turn creepy. I don't know. Is it or is it? Uh, am I looking at it from 21st century? eyes well you may be looking at it from 21st century eyes let's see let's see what you think about the next bit because eventually frederick baker he approached fanny uh, and told her that she could have an extra half penny if she would walk with him to sholden to keep him company because he had to go and pick up some papers for his boss Mm. now fanny she initially took the half penny indicating consent as much as you can consent to anything at the age of eight where sweets are involved but then she decided actually she, di- she didn't really want to walk the mile and a half to the next village over, uh, and she refused to go with Baker. Okay. Being that he was an adult and that she was only eight, he responded by picking her up and walking briskly away. Hmm. So he chucked her under one arm, and off he went. Okay, yeah, so this is absolutely crossed the line now. Yeah, yeah. Minnie and Lizzie, they watched Baker leave, and then headed back to Tanhouse Lane to tell an adult what had happened, as you would. Mm, The first adult that they found was a woman by the name of Martha Warner. Now, at the time, Martha Warner was neck deep in household chores. uh, And she was probably at best only half listening to the story that the two little girls were telling her. So rather than, you know, immediately noticing that this was something that shouldn't have happened uh, and alerting, say, the mother of of the girl or the local constable, uh, she told the girls to stop making up stories and to go off and play. Just leave her alone. Let her get get on with her her tasks. Oh, God. This is like a series of errors now, isn't it? And the worst thing is, because they've been told to by an adult, and it was a communal parenting kind of situation, mm. uh, you know, in Alton at the time, they did exactly as they were told, and they just went oh, off and played. Oh, God, no. And they continued playing quite happily, the two of them, until 5pm, when oh. it was time to go home for dinner. Hmm. When Lizzie returned without Fanny, their mother, she was a bit concerned. You would be. Rightfully so, yeah. yeah. Lizzie told her mother about the man who had given them some money and then carried Fanny off. And Harriet Adams and her friend, Miss Granger, didn't get her first name for some reason, couldn't find out who... Hermione. Okay, there we go. And Miss Hermione Granger immediately set off to try and find the man that Lizzie had described as wearing a grey coat and a tall hat. Now, the two women hadn't gone far when they came across Mr Baker who just so happened to be wearing a grey coat and a tall hat. Mm. The two women demanded to know what he had done with Fanny, and he responded calmly that he often gave money to the local children for sweets, and that the last time he had seen Fanny, she'd been on her way into the town centre to spend the halfpenny. When Harriet threatened to call for the police, Baker coolly replied, You can, of course, do what you like. I shall be at my desk at Mr Clement's office on the high street. And he walked briskly away. What? Yeah. Uh, I'm really... I don't like this man. Mm. Well, the two women, they were surprised by how calm and reasonable Frederick Baker was. Mm. And they decided to believe that he was probably telling the truth. Harriet returned home and waited for Fanny. Probably ready to give her a damn good thrashing when she came in late. Mm. By 7pm, though, Harriet decided that she had waited long enough. And she asked her neighbours to help her search for her daughter. And again, communal parenting, so so many, many people pitched in to help. 
and one of the people enlisted to help in the search was a veteran of the Crimea War called Thomas Gates. And Thomas, he was not only a veteran of the war, but was one of the men involved in the most infamous moment of that war, the charge of the Light Brigade. Okay, what's that? Uh, Into the Valley of Death rode the... I have no idea. Okay, so... (laughs) um, It was immortalised by Alfred Lord Tennyson as an example of British bravery and valour where basically it was um, a suicide charge of a bunch of people on horse, lightly armoured horse, charging Mm. at guns. uh, And there was massive casualties. So it was spun as... I didn't know about that. Look at how brave these boys were. Even in the face of certain death, they rode bravely. But it was actually a massive cock-up by the British forces. The Light Brigade was supposed to be protecting abandoned Turkish artillery pieces from falling into Russian hands. However, an unfortunate miscommunication meant that Lord Cardigan, the leader of the brigade, was instead given orders to charge directly at 50 well-fortified Russian artillery pieces. Mm, clever. So what they what they tried to send him as a message was, just stay with the Turkish guns, make sure that no one's using them again. Okay. You just stay there, just any counter-offensives, you take those. And what he heard was, charge directly at the Russians (laughs) as fast as you can. Okay, right. So that's massive miscommunication. And being a man who followed orders, no matter how insane they might be, Lord Cardigan happily led his men into a valley that provided a clear line of sight for Russian forces, both directly in front of and on both sides of him. I quite like that name, Lord Cardigan. Mm. Well, I I don't know if it was named after him. Mm, well, this is what I think. Obviously, like Sandwich the... is named after Sandwich. And the Wellington boot. Yeah. Mm, yes. Apparently, if you make a you know a contribution to war, no matter if it's positive or negative, you get a you get a piece of clothing named after you. Nearly half of the six hundred men and over half of the poor horses carrying them were either killed or wounded in the suicidal charge. Though Lord Cardigan himself, despite being at the front. Okay. And apparently, as they started the charge, one of the other sort of commanders realised that there'd been a miscommunication and tried to cut Lord Cardigan off and get ahead of him. And Lord Cardigan saw it as this guy trying to take the glory. (laughs) So, sped up. Oh, God. So, if anything, this guy trying to stop it all made it worse. And then he was the first one to be shot as well. Oh, no way. Uh, So, yeah, even though he was right at the front leading this charge... He, of course, because he was a lucky bugger, he managed to survive. He got to the guns, had a little fight, and then he realised he needed to retreat. He turned around, retreated again under heavy sort of artillery fire. He was fine. Uh, And he spent the evening after this absolutely, you know, atrocious bit of military miscommunication on his own personal yacht, enjoying a champagne dinner. I mean... Because that's how Lord Cardigan do. Well... I would as well. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, I've had a, a terribly, day. terribly hard day. Off to the yacht. Do you have any idea how many horses died today? It was very upsetting. <laughs> Some men as well, I hear, but mainly it's the horses. I've, I've just right. brought up, for, so, so that you, you can see how, how it was spun, this massive mm. military cock-up. The Charge of the Light Brigade. I'll just give you the first verse from okay. Alfred Lord Tennyson. Wonderful. Half a league, half a league. Half a league onward, all into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Oh, I like that. And it's, 
cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell, boldly they rode, and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. I like it. I know. When you were saying to the left of me, to the right of me, all I was thinking was clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am. And the, 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 the final verse is brilliant as well, it's... Uh, when can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honour the charge they made. Honour the light brigade. Noble 600. I think, noble? No. Very unfortunate 600. Poor yeah. 600. Uh, yeah. Another fun thing about that poem. It was actually recorded. Alfred Lord Tennyson reading it. Uh, and you can hear it to this day on the Poetry Archive. It was on a wax uh, cylinder, though, so it's warped a little bit. Insert here. <laughs> we don't. We don't have a sound tech. We can't ask people to do that for us. Where were we? Um, yes, we were with one of the veterans of that charge. So, for all the sort of highfalutin way that it it was spun um, to try and you know convince the British that it had been a noble sacrifice uh, rather than a brain fart. Thomas Gates, he'd been there. He knew that it was terrible. He probably was suffering from PTSD. Okay. And I assume that's one of the reasons that he moved to Walton, specifically because he was unlikely to experience anything in a sleepy little village that was famed for making hops. Until now. Yeah, that would trigger his PTSD. He was the person who just so happened to stumble upon Fanny Adams' head. What? Sorry, say that again. On Fanny Adams's head. So he's just found her head, her decapitated head. Most of it. He's found most of her head. What? Okay, this is brutal. So the head that he found was caved in and it was missing an ear and both eyes. But the rest was stuck onto a hop pole, which is the frames used to grow hops, much like grapevines in a vineyard. The head was staring sightlessly directly at him as he entered through the gate. Each corner of the mouth had been sliced open to the hinge of the jaw. That, oh, this poor girl. Mm, well, we can assume that Thomas vomited at the very least. Well, if you didn't, you're made of bloody stone. But he was eventually able to call the other searchers to the area. So, yeah, I mean, you, you're looking for a kid and you're, you know, you're kind of in the back of your head, you're thinking, oh, has something gone wrong? But what you're really hoping for is to just find her huddled up somewhere with a bag full of sweets, knowing that she's in trouble and trying to scarf the lot before someone finds her and takes her home to her mum. And you're presented with this. I've just Googled a picture and there's like a photograph of the little girl. Mm. And this will be, you know, it's, it's we're getting on for eight o'clock now, so it's in the fading light. So you're getting that sort of blood red sky illuminating this horror. Eventually... Other bits of Fanny were recovered. All of her limbs had been removed from the trunk. One leg had been neatly cut away, while the other was described as having been ripped from the socket. The limbs had been further divided, with hands and feet being removed, and one of the arms being split at the elbow joint. From the remains of the chest and the pelvis, it was discovered that all of Fanny's internal organs had been removed. The pieces all showed evidence of even further experimentation, with stab marks on her liver and the muscles on one of her arm having been removed from the bone. Although her eyes were eventually found, fro- floating in the River Wye, 
her breastbone, vagina, which had been fully removed, and a number of other pieces were never recovered. What on earth? What I've just described to you is the most horrific scavenger hunt that has ever taken place in our country. And this guy went there to get away from, like, brutality as well. Yeah. He'd he'd come home to a sleepy part of the home counties to forget the horrors of war, and then he'd stumbled upon something that was just so much, so much more horrific. Well, Joe, I feel really sad now. I'm sorry, but that's that's the... the that's life, that's, Ollie. That's get what on happened, with it. Oliver. <laughs> this is what happened. Now, we're going to carry on. Uh, stiff upper lip. Uh, mm-hmm. After one more heartbreaking detail. Okay, go on. One of the severed hands that was recovered was found to be still clutching a half penny. Oh, bless her! So she didn't even get her sweeties. I know. I don't know. I don't know why that gets it. The fact that she was still, you know, her hand was sort of clutched around this thing. It could easily be argued that this was singularly the most disturbing and upsetting crime scene of the nineteenth century with both the level of butchery, which a surgeon later estimated could have taken upwards of an hour to complete, the setting, time their ends. Yeah, the setting and the choice of victim, making the Ripper murders look relatively prudish in comparison. Yeah, definitely. It always seems worse. I don't, obviously, a life is a life, isn't it? But mm. it always seems a lot worse when it's an adolescence. Yeah. Uh, well, eight... You know, I mean, yeah. adolescence would have been... Mm, it's just sad. Understandably, when she was told what had happened, Harriet Adams fainted. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd be quite understanding if it was for three years. Mm. But no, she, she fainted, so uh, it left it up to her neighbours to inform her husband, George, as to what had happened. And as this was a summer day, and as this was the home counties... George was playing cricket at the time, and he had to be ordered from Silly Point in order to be told the horrific news from the privacy of the pavilion. Oh, God, okay. George apparently responded by calmly walking back to his home and loading his shotgun before trying to make his way to the offices of Mr Clement to conduct Mm. his own version of an investigation. I mean, I would absolutely do the same. Mm. And from the description, it was he didn't... He was informed of the what happened, and he just kind of went, mm, "Okay," mm. and this and is how we deal with it. <laughs> briskly started walking off to his home with a load of concerned people sort of following him, and he just sort of disappeared into his house. And they were expecting to hear sort of like wails of anguish or something, but instead he just walked out calmly, loading cartridges into a shotgun. And they were like, "Oh no, oh oh, we have to stop this. We we really do need to stop this because uh, his friend his friends and neighbours." bravely managed to wrestle the gun from him. I was going to say, he's obviously going through trauma yeah, and they <laughs> at all, that point. They didn't just keep the gun away from him. They sat with him all night, just in case, you know, he, he sort of realised he, he owned many things, many tools that could be used in lieu mm. of a shotgun. Yeah. So they spent all night with him. Uh, this ensured that Frederick Baker was eventually confronted not by an angry father, but by the police specifically by Police Superintendent William Cheney, who went to the offices at 9pm. I'm guessing Mr Cheney asked about his whereabouts, and Baker again protested that he was completely innocent. Mm. However, the police had been observed entering the solicitor's office, and Cheney was aware that a crowd was gathering outside the front door. Okay. So while 
the friends had managed to sort of placate the father. Everyone else the, was yeah, fuming. The, the story had gotten round Alton, and mob mentality. They they basically watched where the police had gone and gone right there. Let's that's go. where we need to gather. Come on, guys, get your pitchforks. Mm. We're going to have a fun evening yeah. of mob justice here. Yeah, because they were they were doing things apparently outside, like you know, literally brandishing clubs. They they were and shouting things like "We're going to kill you." I mean, and I, I mean, we do, I, we don't know if this at this point in the story, we mm. don't know if this chap has done it. Yeah. Um, but it's very easy to get swept into that mob mentality, and people people will do things in a group that they wouldn't do on their own. That's very very true. But I mean, in in this case, the the fact that this guy he's you know he's been confronted by these two women and he's gone fine, go and tell the police. So he's probably half expecting some some constable to come through the door, probably to have a word with him. But it's the fact that as he's having that conversation, he becomes aware, you know, just out the corner of his eye, and he looks out the window and just sees a sea of faces, just hurling threats at him and brandishing weapons. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. Despite at this point not being charged with anything, in order to ensure that Baker was still alive to have charges brought against him, uh, he was placed under arrest and he was taken out of a back door secretly and quickly into the custody of police. At Alton Police Station, the police discovered that Frederick Baker had bloodstains on his shirt cuffs and on his trousers. Guilty! It seems, well, I mean, there are, there are loads of reasons that you might have blood on your shirt cuffs. I mean, you may have cut yourself shaving. How often do you have blood on your clothing, Joe? Not that often, but I imagine, mm. you know, that's because I'm I'm able to avail myself of all the modern mechanisms of keeping myself clean and keeping, you know, things working. I, I for, for example, I've never owned a pocket knife that I've had to use uh, on day to day. I assume I that people have. Mm. Yeah. I have. I just I just I think to cut all, apples with it. Yeah, but I mean, everything, it's just like, you know, I imagine even a couple of hundred years ago, you know, doors were more likely to have splinters and roads were more likely to be um, uneven. And what people do you mean? didn't have the They're same... terrible now. <laughs> but, you know, people didn't have the same level of health and safety. It was like, well, if you hurt yourself, it's bad on you. I, I imagine injuries were more common. My mum, when she was a kid, like she was out with the the, the, the neighbours and for some reason, they were playing with like a garden, like fork thing, like pitchfork thing. As you and, do. And um, my mum was like, because it was their dad's. She was just like, "Oh, I want, I want the pitchfork." And the the next door neighbour was like, "No, I'm playing with it." And then, <laughs> and then this went like on for ages. And then eventually, this kid like threw it. And he was like, "Fine, just have it." Threw it, and it went straight through her foot, right, and like came out the other side of her foot. She went nice. in and told her mum. Her mum pulled it out and like bandaged it up and was like, "Yeah, off you go then." Brilliant. This is like in the sixties. <laughs> like, yeah, off you go. You're fine. Tetanus? What is tetanus? Yeah, I'm sure that we don't need to. Check She's up still on got that wound. my mum's still got the scars. I'm not to this surprised. Day. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it was in- encouraged to heal particularly well. That's village life for you. Oh, is it? They, mm. they make them hard in the villages. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying is. You could have come up with any kind of excuse, but it seems that Frederick Baker, he was really bad at improv because when they asked him, mm. well, how has the blood gotten there then? 
The only answer he could come up with was, and this is a direct quote, well, I don't see a scratch on my hands to account for the blood. (laughs) Surely you're just, like, setting yourself up for that. Well, yeah, he left it there. (laughs) They were like, yes. It's like, I I finished my statement on on the blood. Thank you. What's the next question? Like, goddamn, just anything would do, you know. Like saying, I was eating an apple uh, and I accidentally cut my finger. Anything he could have come up with. Yeah. He's, it's like it's like he wants to be caught. I don't know about that. He definitely doesn't seem to be bothered that he's been caught. Well, maybe he's just not a bit... Maybe he's just not very bright. Maybe he's innocent. Oh, maybe. It was also found that he had two small knives in his pockets. Mm, guilty. These also had spots of blood on them. However, it was established that the actual cause of death was from blunt force trauma to the skull with a heavy object. And no item matching that description was found on Baker when he was arrested. Mm. So, um, I guess this is the only kind of saving grace for what we described in terms of the crime scene was that uh, that all happened posthumously. And the death was relatively, well, you know, relatively instantaneous. Just blunt blunt force trauma killed... Uh and then he did all the crazy and, stuff yeah. afterwards. Yeah, that was it, it. She was not alive when any of that was happening. And her, God. yeah, I mean, it's you, it's clutching at you know the smallest shreds of, mm. but still, at least there's that. There was a glimmer of hope for Baker the following morning, when an army of locals wanting to help descended on the crime scene and effectively destroyed any other evidence. Okay, such as well, if if there'd been any you know, boot prints, if there'd been any sort of anything that could, you know, because uh, there were sort of prototype police detectives by this stage. So anything that someone might have been able to use to build a case against him in that hop garden where her body, her head was found, mm. was absolutely destroyed. Because the problem was, this was a time before the police had standard operating procedures, obviously. And once they found the body and they'd taken all the pieces to the local pub for uh, the coroner to have a look at, because that's what you normally did. Yeah. The local pub would also act as coroner's court. Uh, it was free for anyone to go. And of course, as soon as the, the word got around the town and they'd realised they weren't going to get to grab Baker because he was safely under lock and key, they all went to have a good lucky loo at her house. So just and destroyed. At the, yeah, and at the um, hop garden. And probably all tried to follow, evidence. yeah, where it had gone as well. So it's like, oh, and I, I heard they found some of it in the river. So they all went and traipsed down, hundreds of people traipsing down to the floods to have a look there. I suppose, again, looking at it with our eyes, mm. do you know what I mean? You probably don't realise that those things are significant, like closing off the crime scene. and. Well, it was, it was a massive stuff. traumatic event for the entire, you know, community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you only have to see it in your own sort of communities... Like, if something happens, there's this ripple effect, even though it doesn't happen to you directly. Mm. Um, then, yeah, it sends, like, shockwaves, doesn't it? You're like, oh, these are our streets and blah, blah, blah. And this was before, you know, sort of like the, the mechanisation of uh, transport really took hold. So these these communities were more isolated, so you did know the people around you better. That yeah. sort of communal parenting I was talking about, that was because these were... You know, the, all the other parents were the same kids you'd grown up with. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. you know, their parents were 
all you know grown up in the same village as well there was just this idea that well, we're all we're all a we're group all we're in all it together, together. Yeah. we we don't we look after our own mm. so yeah they they destroyed quite a lot of the evidence but luckily one thing that wasn't destroyed or discarded a small distance away from the hop garden a man called william walker he was just you know sort of loitering at the edges having a look and he stumbled upon a stone that appeared to be covered in blood and hair mm. and was likely to have been the murder weapon. Oh, okay. So they were able, thanks to William Walker, to establish that the murder had definitely taken place in that area. God, that must have been some hit. Uh, I, d- I don't know how much how much force it would take to, to crack a skull. a skull. I mean, I'm assuming a, ch- a child's skull is less... They're not fully formed, are Yeah, it's they? less the... energy needed, but still... I, I mean, it was it was enough to kill instantly. So he must have given it everything he had. This murderer of ours, prick. Even more damning, though, than finding the murder weapon, was the evidence of two witnesses. Firstly, a fellow clerk called Maurice Biddle, mm. who said he had seen Baker in the office at about six on the evening of the murder. Okay. Where Baker had described to him meeting Mrs. Adams on the road just before he got back, and commented. It will be very awkward for me if the child is murdered. Okay. So he said, you know, this this woman came up to me and accused me of abducting a daughter, and I said, oh, well, I just gave her some money. Is it illegal? Is it illegal to give young girls money and watch them play while picking blackberries for them for a good half hour? Well, is that illegal? Be. Am I not a British man? And then just to comment afterwards, oh, and it would be awkward for me, wouldn't it? I mean, if if she was murdered, why would you even mention it? Well, yeah, that's that's what they were wondering as well. Hmm. Later, back in the pub, Baker, still with his good mate, Biddle, uh, said he might leave the town following Monday. And when Marie said he would have difficulty in finding a new job if he just left his station Hmm. without, you know, any explanation, he had responded by saying, I could go as a butcher. Again, why would you say that? This is the thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, when you get murderers who feel like they've covered up the crime, Mm. they'll make sort of, you know, cryptic references to it, as in, you know, haha, I'm so smart. I'm not going to say anything that's out and out incriminating, and I know you're not going to be able to find the evidence. But he didn't try and hide the crime. And they make themselves quite present as well, don't they? Yeah. In the whole thing. A lot of the time, they'll, they'll be part of the appeals process or they'll help with the searches and stuff because mm. they want to make sure that things well, get remember, found. Remember that Ian Huntley, he was all on the news, wasn't he? Like, help, helping, like, searching for the two poor girls that yeah. he bloody murdered. And, um, yeah, he was all on the news. Well, it's, like, a way of, it's a way of disguising it as well, isn't it? It's sort of like, oh, not, you know, such and such because they were so upset and they wanted to do everything they could to help. Mm. They were making lasagnas for the poor bereaved family. And what they tend to do is lead them in like different directions, don't they? So, oh, like maybe we should should try here. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that be a good idea? Like, over here? No, no, not there. Definitely not there. Not there. <laughs> but the problem, the problem with Maurice's evidence was it could still be dismissed as hearsay and as um, you know, it's it's not it's circumstantial at best. You know, he may have just been making an offhand, flippant comment. Well, if she was murdered, could you imagine? It's got like a a dry sense of humour. Yeah, but then there was the statement of the second witness, who was a local boy 
who literally saw Baker leaving the crime scene at around 2pm, covered in blood, and going down to the river to try and wash himself clean. So that's that's a bit more incriminating, I'd say. Yeah. You know, the first one is... But again, I guess you could argue, well, he's a young lad. Did he know what he saw? Is he reliable, or is he just wanting to get involved? Is he seeing the excitement and he wants to place himself in the yeah, centre of it? Yeah, yeah. You could definitely question how reliable as a witness uh, uh, he was. Although forensic <laughs> testing was still in the very early stages, a Dr. Taylor from Guy's Hospital in London was able to confirm that the blood on the clothing and the knives and the rock was human. Okay. Although this was before he could say which human or if they all came from the same human. But it's it's narrowing down. So, you know... Um, Baker can't use the the defense of oh well you know I I was covered in blood because I happened to find a hair on the way back and I did a quick bit of butchery uh, before I went back to the office so that I'd have you know some meat for tea mm. you know you, I just killed that deer from down road yeah yeah he could have sort of played into the butchery thing going I've always been a secret butcher. That's where my passion lies. I don't like being a clerk in a solicitor's office. I, I yearn to skin and dress meat I for sale. Butchers and tattooists are a bit sadistic. How so? And I'm sticking with that statement. Okay. Is this because of how much your tattoo hurt? No, I just think you've got like, if you're, if you're in a profession where you're just constantly hurting people, and they're paying for it. There's something a little bit sadistic about that. Okay, but to be fair to the butchers, they're not actually hurting anything. When it gets no, to them, it's beyond feeling. But then you've also you've got a, like have quite a strong stomach to do that. Like I mean, I eat meat. I'm not a I'm not a, a vegan or a vegetarian or anything. Uh, but if I if they basically told me to go off and be like, right, you've got to kill that cow now and um you've got to like butcher it and eat it i couldn't do it no no how about if we made it a fair fight and it's like you've got to go and kill that cow now but you've got to do it with your bare hands you've got to choke that cow out that would make it worse oh okay i was thinking (laughs) (laughs) how about if i I threw you in with an enraged bull and it was like right you've got to survive this because only one of you's coming out it's no, well, it, you definitely, the ball. it definitely wouldn't be me. <laughs> I sacrifice myself to the ball rather than give in on my principles. Yeah, exactly. However, probably the most damning piece of evidence that was found was the diary of Frederick Baker that was discovered in his desk at the solicitor's office. Mm. The entry for August 24th read, it's quite a short entry, this, <clears throat> killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. What? Yes. He obviously didn't go to English class today because that is not a very good description of what he has just done. Well, no, it's it's, it's brief, mm. definitely. But I mean, he was doing a lot. The fact that he wrote a diary entry for that day, considering he was doing all of that butchery around two o'clock. Apparently, he was clean dressed and back at the office in order to be talking to bidder you know, a couple of hours later, and he had time to go back to the pub for a few drinks before going is, back seems... to the office to do more work. He was he was a busy man that day. It seems too obvious to be him, but I think it is him. Well, I mean, we've got quite a lot of evidence building up now. 
Okay. And it did, I will admit, look like an open and shut case. However, in England, it is supposedly a key pillar of the legal system that anyone accused of a crime is considered to be innocent until proven guilty. Okay. So we're still, you know, we should be referring to him as the accused murderer. Okay. The alleged. Mm. But on this occasion, it appeared that the good people of Hampshire were going to temporarily suspend that principle. Because firstly, on August 27th, the coroner, Robert Harfield, listed the cause of death as being by, and this was in the official coroner's report, injuries inflicted by Frederick Baker, open brackets, murderer, close brackets. Okay, so it's it's definitely him. It might be someone else, but it's him. What, What he should have put was, cause of death, blunt force trauma to the head. You know, he, the coroner's supposed to be objective and mm. describe the facts of what's happened. He's not supposed it must to... It so hard not to give your opinion. Well, no, the, the coroner will normally be asked to give evidence at the, at the uh, trial, so they will, give a, they will be given a, a, an opportunity to give, and it is my opinion that these injuries would have been caused by this, that or the other. Excellent. But in terms said, of the, yeah. the death certificate, you know, and the cause of death, it's just what caused this person to die. It's not... Who who was the person who did that? <laughs> it was him. So the fact Burn that the witch. But I love the fact that he also, you know, just in brackets, murderer, just in case it wasn't clear <laughs> that so the person funny, causing yeah. the injuries that killed someone, murderer. Yeah, we don't want you to think this was manslaughter or this was accidental. He is a murderer. I always think that manslaughter sounds worse than murderer. Mm. It's because the word slaughter, I guess. No, no, I know what you mean. It, it seems it's more graphic, isn't it? Mm. Manslaughter. I'd... I'd, I'd where does the word, like, um, homicide come from? Because um, obviously the Americans use that quite a lot, and sometimes we use it here, but not very often. I'd, well, homicide is just killing any any other person, isn't it? And then you had all the, like, fratricide, patricide, matricide. Oh, I didn't know any of that. Fratricide, killing a brother, patricide, dad, matricide, mum. I think it's matricide, it's mum. And there's one for know. killing your spouse and da 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 da. So, I think it's homicide is the way that they describe when they don't know the relation between the person when there's no clear relation between the two people. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Because oh yeah, because fratricide is brother and sororicide is your sister. Because you've got How fraternity you know and sorority. Um, random facts. I don't know why I know sororicide is murdering a, a sister, but I do. So there you go. Do you do you have a sister that you've murdered? I we we were four boys, unfortunately. In my my family, we we uh, I couldn't have committed sororicide if I wanted to. There was a sister, but you committed sororicide. Sororicide. I wonder if there's a specific one for killing a twin. Anyway, after being labelled as a murderer by the coroner, Frederick Baker was taken to Winchester Jail to await his trial, which would not take place until December fifth. By this time. Songs and plays about the crime were being performed all over the country, and all of these stated categorically that he was definitely the murderer. So they were like the the ballad of poor Fanny Adams and the cruel murderer Frederick Baker, and these were being you know the song sheets were being sold around the towns, and people were going and performing them, and there were plays where they were staging with a character. Clearly labelled as Frederick Baker murdering on stage, been... yeah. And it, this That's is a... all before his trial. Okay. So 
With all of this going on, the defence realised that public opinion and the overwhelming evidence meant that it would be a fool's errand to try and argue that Frederick had not committed the murder and the subsequent mutilation. To try and actually turn around and go, no, it wasn't this man, would be impossible considering Mm. the situation. They decided they'd try and argue that he had not committed the murder. And they were basing this on use of grammar. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So what they said was the confession in his diary, the supposed confession, (laughs) is it a confession? They're saying that if you read it, there's a little mark that you might think is a smudge, but it's actually a comma. And if you allow it to be a comma, and if you believe it is a comma, it changes the entire meaning of the sentence. So we're all reading it as killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. When actually he was briefly describing what had happened that day. And it was killed a young girl. It was fine and hot. So it wasn't him admitting that he'd killed a young girl. It was him saying briefly... A young girl had been killed. Killed, yeah, obviously. He's a he's a you know a solicitor's clerk. He's got a lot of work to be getting through. Oh, so bullshit. all of his diary entries have to be as brief as possible. So he, they couldn't have put a young girl was killed, but it was killed a young girl. Weather was good. <laughs> so that was that was the only that was the only argument the defense team could come up with. That, I mean that's that's a pretty poor argument I would say. And they presented it, and then they had a little look across at the jury to see whether whether they'd managed to sway anyone. And they could see that it, it wasn't working, that the pedantic grammatical defence wasn't a goer. And that if anything, they'd just kind of piss the jury off a little bit by <laughs> making this claim. Um, so they resorted to their backup plan. And as you probably know from every serial killer story you've ever read, the backup plan when you've been caught bang to rights is to claim that you are... Insane. Criminally insane. So they decided to lean fully into the horror and revulsion that the British public felt at what happened to argue that Frederick Baker must, must be insane because only someone who had lacked all reason and all faculties could commit such a barbaric act. So their argument was he went temporarily insane. It is the only way that any person could stoop to this level of behaviour. I mean, you'd have to be pretty off your rocker. Mm. But it wasn't the worst use of the insanity defence that's ever been trotted out because, unlike most murderers who have tried it, there was actually evidence to support the idea that Baker was predisposed towards mental health issues. Okay. So most most of the guys who who tried the old insanity, it's like there's there's nothing in the past, in the family past, that would suggest that they had ever been mentally unwell or were even you know likely to develop a, a mental illness. But in terms of Baker's immediate immediate family, mm. in terms of his immediate family, it was established beyond a doubt that his father had once attempted to kill both Baker and his siblings during a bout of extreme paranoia that his cousin had been committed to an asylum on no less than four separate occasions, that his sister had died of a brain fever, and that Baker himself had tried to commit suicide following rejection by a woman in Guildford. I mean, I've been rejected by a woman in Guildford before. Uh, Did you immediately try and off yourself? Yes. Did you? Oh dear. No. No. (laughs) We're keeping you away from children. No. Confiscates half pennies. 
Yeah, you're never coming to my house again. Yeah. Good day. It is believed that the uh, the whole issue over um, the woman in Guildford and his response and the shame that that brought on him may have been the reason that he moved to Alton in the first place to try and get away from you know the, the trouble rejection. Well, rejection, but also there was a massive taboo against suicide. So even though he he did not succeed, you can imagine that it would go the around shame. town and the shame yeah. of that and how unmanly it was to to respond in such a way and how much of an affront to God it was to try and uh, you know Angel destroy one of his beautiful creations by removing yourself from this mortal mortal plane. Mm. So he you know he had a bit of an argument to say well. Apparently, he was mentally unstable. His dad definitely was mentally unstable. And he'd, you know, as we were talking about before, about, you know, sort of childhood trauma. If if your dad's tried to kill you, that's probably going to cause some some kind of yeah, that's repercussions gonna leave a down mark. the line for you. The judge, Justice Meller, he did instruct the jury that they could find Baker not guilty by reason of insanity if they wished to do so. So he said, you know, in his instructions to the jury, he's like, yeah, you you could decide this. You know, I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand because sometimes judges in their statements would, you know, pretty much shit all over a defence if they thought it was complete bullcrap. And they say, I can't tell you to ignore this person's spurious lies, but but I expect you to be able to, you know, be a good judge of character, which was just, you know, barely coded for... Can a jury get overruled by a judge? Um, technically, no. Okay. As far as I'm aware, they can they can admit that they are not following the rule of the law and still decide that someone is not guilty. So they can, they can say that, you know, we find him not guilty even though he did the act. Okay. So that, on that technicality. Well, not even the on law. the technicality. They can just decide because it is you are tried by 12, good, you know, of your peers. And if mm. they decide that... I suppose that's why they do... Jury service, isn't it? Because mm. they ran, they try and get people from a wide, wide array of the yeah. community. Yeah, but you know, the judge's job is to make sure that the trial's conducted fairly. Uh, and in, in terms of a jury trial, this is, you know, their job is to, you know, make sure that points of law are explained to the jury, to advise and instruct the jury on, you know, what the task is and what bits of evidence they can and can't take into consideration. But ultimately, the you know the decision does sit with the jury. So in this in this case, he he advised them and instructed them that they could choose to find him not guilty by mm. reason of insanity, which means that he obviously felt that there was some merit to that argument. Okay. However, the evidence of trying to conceal the crime and the cold manner that he had recorded the events in his diary meant that the jury needed barely fifteen minutes before they returned a guilty verdict. So they went nah, nah, because if you, if you were truly um, insane at the time you did that you wouldn't have gone to try and wash wash all the blood off and you wouldn't have gone back to work and recorded what you'd done in your diary and you wouldn't have been planning to leave on monday to go and become a butcher somewhere else (laughs) you know those that's planning that's sort of Mm. trying to cover up the crime these are all things that someone who's truly insane wouldn't do because if you were truly insane you would have proudly shown what you'd have done because you wouldn't have seen that it was wrong you know, you'd have been carrying parts of that uh, body that you just butchered down the high street, oh, and God, you wouldn't have understood yeah. why people were looking at you with revulsion. That's that's true insanity, <laughs> in a legal perspective. You know. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I suppose insanity 
is different for everybody. It is. So actually, there might have been legitimate things that he did. You can you can have a mental I'm not sticking health up condition, for him. but in terms of the legal definition of being, uh, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity, is that you had to have no idea of right and wrong at the time in which you committed doing. the act. Yeah, it's really kind of cut and dry. So being you, really depressed it, isn't, you know, you could be manic depressive. Mm. That's not going to get you guilty by insanity although you you know it's a mental illness and it's a Gee, people that like murder people in their sleep like what on earth that's insane like people who kill when they're like asleep mm. I, I don't i don't know where that would go i guess what would it be involuntary manslaughter possibly i don't know like if, if everyone's telling you that you did this and you're like i literally have no recollection oh that'd be that. hard you'd be traumatized yeah I mean, surely there's a simple fix of just making sure that all the doors are locked by somebody else on your room and that they're very strong. Mm. Well, when I was a teenager, uh, me and my mate Adam, we weren't we weren't an item, but um, we slept in the same bed like all the time. And um, I woke up and I had my hands round his neck, right. and my mum and her partner and that had to pull me off of him and I had no idea what had happened and um, apparently I was trying to strangle him so uh, yeah yeah it's never happened since it's um it's been fine it was just that one and only evening is this is um, this a caveat when when you're meeting a prospective partner for the first time do you have to kind of mention oh and you may wake up to find me strangling you don't worry Mm. it's nothing personal yeah they might be into it you never know I am blushing. I don't know where to put my face. Frederick Baker, after being found guilty, he was sentenced to hang, and the execution took place on Christmas Eve, eighteen sixty-seven. Okay. Apparently, before his death, Baker did write to Fanny's parents, asking for forgiveness for what he had done, in what he described as an unguarded hour. So he didn't. He didn't refer to any of what he had done in you know sort of graphic terms or it was all sort of alluded to so i i'm very sorry for for what i did during an unguarded hour and he he didn't he didn't ever say i'm sorry that i killed your daughter or i'm sorry for what i did afterwards that made it you know impossible for you to ever have a fond memory of her again because all you will be able to see is the collection her of dead body yeah that i you know, I, I basically reduced your daughter to a pile of meat. None of that. It was just... I think it was kind of a cursory... Somebody convinced him that in order to save his immortal soul and expect forgiveness from God, he had to confess. So he did so in the most sort of non-committal way possible. Just trying to clean his own conscience, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this was, this was a gambit to, to, to get him on the right side of, of God rather than to to give the parents any kind of closure or any kind of um, comfort. And weirdly, you know, they chose not to forgive him. Well, I'm not surprised. Even though, to be fair, he did try to comfort them further by insisting that he had not even attempted to rape their daughter before killing oh, her. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that makes it better. Well, I mean, I don't know if this points to him having some, you know, lack of empathy, lack of understanding of real human emotions, that he, he seemed to think that would help. Because what about if that hadn't even entered their yeah. 
the parents' head, then all of a sudden by him saying, oh, I didn't do it, yeah, you're going to think... Yeah, as soon as you say that, he, he, he definitely did, did. Yeah. Yeah. Whether he thought he was being helpful or whether he was trying to introduce that, it, that's what it did. Mm. And I didn't, didn't, didn't rape her. Like, oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, great, thanks. Nice one. You absolute arsehole. I mean, to be honest, rather than hang him, I would have just allowed George to carry on with his shotgun. I'd be like, and your sentence is... Uh, we're just going to leave the cell unlocked and George let, is going to come down and have the parents... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it'll be cathartic for him. Cut your bungles off. That's what I would do. Bit by bit. And then the toes. You're learning a lot about me this evening, aren't you? I feel a bit like mm-hmm. I'm divulging a lot of information. So the parents chose not to forgive him. And mm. neither did the crowd of around 5,000, most of them women, who attended his execution outside Winchester Prison. And it was uh, the last execution that was conducted at Winchester Prison as well. Okay. Frederick Baker was immortalised at Madame Tussauds in the infamous Chamber of Horrors with a model that was based on his own death mask. Is it still there? I don't know if it's still there. It probably isn't, is it? It's probably in storage somewhere. Mm. His his death mask will still be knocking around somewhere. I think, is it Edinburgh has a a museum that's just got a load of death masks of convicted criminals in? He's probably there. It, yeah, it might do. And all of this brings us back to the Navy and their new Tim Mutton, which is where we started, if you remember. Oh, yeah, I completely forgot about that line. Because the horror of this crime was still fresh in the public consciousness in 1869 when mm. the Mutton was first distributed. And it didn't take long for one of the sailors to make the joke that they had finally discovered what had happened to the parts of Fanny Adams that had not been recovered by the police. The dark humour struck a chord and soon everyone was referring to the inferior mutton as Sweet Fanny Adams. The meaning of the phrase developed over time to refer to anything that was so inferior as to be essentially worthless and was eventually contracted to just Sweet F.A. That's it. Do you know, now that you study it, I did know this. I did know that it didn't mean fuck all and it meant Fanny Adams, but I didn't know what the link was. That's so interesting. Well, on, on C, it meant Sweet Fanny Adams. Yeah. Back on land, members of the working class realised that the two initials could also be used to represent the words fuck all and took to using it in situations where it would not be appropriate to swear. Yeah. So if they got called up on it, they sweet would go, F-A. no, it means sweet Fanny Adams. Mm. The term is still commonly used to this day, though it has evolved further and now sweet F.A. mostly refers to having nothing to do or being completely without something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got sweet F all. Yeah. Or F A or whatever. What are you doing yeah. today? Sweet F A, mate. What are you up to? Yeah. Yeah. So that is the story of the origin of sweet fuck all. Done. Yeah. Boom. That, is... button. that also happens to contain possibly the most disgusting murder. So this is, this is pre Jack the Ripper, isn't it? Because Jack this the Ripper is, was eighteen eighty eight, I think. Late eighteen eighties, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, twenty twenty odd years before. This is this happened. Brutal. Oh, bless her. Mm. So there oh, you go. Awful, I mean, awful man. Yeah, and it's it's one of those. I think we're going to have to put a um, a caveat on the start of this that it's it's quite you know the, the gruesome. Yeah. If if you are triggered by the idea of um, child murder, best give this episode a swerve because yeah. it's not it's not great. But it's it's interesting how the how the, how the two things are linked because actually I was just like why why are you jumping from the navy to the 
to Alton. I didn't get the, I didn't get the reference. I was like, okay, fine. Um, I'll jo- jo- let Joe be Joe. And then... Um, no, I just wanted to do that little Navy thing. I was like, oh, I'll ask you a few of those. In the Navy, we can sail the seven seas. Bless her. I've been, whilst you've been talking, I've been looking at photos of uh, Alton mm. and uh, of that one photograph of Fanny Adams. Bless her. And it was it was one of those, you know, the the ones that really shocked the nation. Definitely yeah. one of those murders at the time. A bit like when we covered the Red Barn. You know, these these are the these are the murders that didn't make the cut as much as like the Ripper murders did in terms of staying in the public consciousness. Because at the time they were they were ju- they were right up there. But it's the same way that you know we've seen a lot of murders over our lifetime. Mm. But how many of them have have reached that status where? Yeah, you know, everybody knows. Yeah, true, 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 true. There's um, there's some imagery and stuff now, especially that stays in our minds. So I obviously meant, mentioned Ian Huntley and stuff. I would say that's a big one. Mm. Um, but then prior to that, I couldn't really tell you anyone apart from the Yorkshire Ripper in the 80s. Yeah. Really. All of these things, at the moment they're happening, everyone's horrified and everybody's sort of, you know, reading it and da 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 But then... It's the ones that managed to stick in in the public consciousness, and I'm surprised that this one didn't. Although it may have been because of just how horrific and senseless it was. You know, there's there's no sort of cat and mouse game with the police like there is with Jack the Ripper. And oh, was he the one writing the notes? Was he doing this? Was there some kind of uh, link to royalty? Was there some kind of link to some kind of secret society? I also think it's different with children mm. as well. Like, so you you think of the the sort of the big names that we've got, like Crippen and Jack the Ripper and the Yorkshire Ripper and these big names. There's like no kids are really involved at all. It's almost like we can't handle it. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. <laughs>